Always Together by Simon Stevenson. Simon Stevenson's older brother walked the world ahead of him. But when Dominic is caught by tragedy, how can the younger learn to take the lead? Not long after my parents brought me home from the maternity ward, my brother Dominic tipped me out of my pram and into our neighbour's flower bed. Family legend suggests that he was simply as perturbed by my invasion of his patio as any firstborn toddler ought to be, but I've never believed that his motivation was jealousy. I've always thought that he was simply in a hurry to get me to come out and play. Until one December morning six years ago, I used to sometimes wonder why he had been in such a rush. There were only 16 months between us, and for the purposes of daily life, we might as well have been born twins. From the second I was old enough to commando crawl after him, all our business with the world seemed to be conducted on a partnership basis. As we grew, a stepladder of parallel pencil marks charting our tandem velocities on the back of the kitchen cupboard door, we shared everything. Clothes and bedrooms, toys and fights, childish illnesses, and even the feverish dreams that accompanied them. Our parents referred to us collectively as the boys, and the description fitted us so well that we assumed it to be a proprietary term. When we found out that other families with male offspring also used the phrase too, we were incensed. We considered ourselves a single entity. And yet even as we endlessly rough and tumbled into one another, we were learning about the differences between us. He had an untamable cowlick, and I had one pointed ear. He was quiet and I was noisy. He could colour between the lines and I could not. He could eat tomatoes and I could not, but I could eat an entire packet of chocolate biscuits without throwing up, and he could not. He was fearless, whereas I was terrified of everything. Around the time I was to start school, we moved to a house big enough that we could each have our own bedroom. Here, Dominic kept a mattress under his bed for nights when I was too timid to sleep alone. Most evenings I found something to be scared of, but fell fast asleep the second I lay down in his room. At the time I would have told you I was concerned about kidnappers who might arrive in the night, but I suspect I was simply frightened of not being close enough to Dominic. Conversely, when the day arrived for me to go to school, there could not possibly be anything to worry about because Dominic went there every day. As the years passed, I followed Dominic through classrooms, through scout halls and across soccer fields, down artificial ski slopes and across riverbanks. Mum had long ago ceased to dress us in matching outfits, but we still pooled our pocket money each week and my mattress remained stashed under Dominic's bed until an absurdly late age. At 11 and 12, we even shared our first job, a paper round for a free newspaper that only the recycling bins behind the supermarket received without complaint. When we entered our teens, our hormones surged, and with them the seeming differences we'd first glimpsed so many years before. I overtook him in height, but he developed impressive muscles in places where I did not seem to have any. He started crew-cutting his hair and I grew mine long. Most obviously, there was our music, our perpetually competing stereos and awful cacophony of the bright rhythms of his reggae interspersed with the rainy introspection of my grunge. Yet even as we grappled with these changes, we indelibly remained the boys, 
many teenage knights would stand out on the meadows in Edinburgh, silently throwing a frisbee back and forth until long after it was dark and every throw and catch had become an act of fraternal faith. At 18, Dominic moved to Glasgow to study architecture. When a year later it came my turn to leave home, I inevitably followed him to that city. This time round I did not need to keep a mattress under his bed, for I lived only two streets from him. On my first visit to his flat, he solemnly instructed me that I must always consider it a second home. In truth, he did not have to say this, for I would have done so anyway. We'd long passed the days when my school projects would be the ones he had undertaken a year previously. But in Glasgow, he continued to help me in all the ways he knew, teaching me to make technical drawings of the human nervous system for a medical school assignment and instructing me on which areas of the city were best avoided after closing time on Saturday nights. At some point during those salad days, I began to have some minor writing successes, and he was inevitably my most enthusiastic booster. The first time I had something published in a newspaper, I entered his flat to find the feature triumphantly spread across his kitchen table. If I cannot now recall much that I ever did for Dominic by way of return, some of that imbalance is no doubt a trick of memory, but I suspect at least a little of it reflects the way things genuinely were. To have any brother in this world is to be part of an exclusive club to which no riches, no secret handshake, no guest list can ever give you admittance. To have a closer older brother is a far greater privilege still. For as the younger brother, at a certain moment on your journey, somewhere between sleeping on a mattress on your brother's floor and transporting all your belongings to the city he has lately moved to, you come to understand a hitherto hidden truth about your relationship that if it is indeed a partnership, your older brother has forever been this firm's senior member. All these years, you have imagined you were walking side by side, and one morning you wake up and realise he has been two steps ahead of you all along, walking backwards to make sure that you do not fall. On Boxing Day 2004, Dominic and his girlfriend Eileen were staying on the island of Koh Phi Phi Don in Thailand. Their Christmas break had seemed a half-chance well taken. Dominic, now a 27-year-old architect, had some annual leave to use up and Eileen was already travelling east to visit relatives. On Christmas Day, they had telephoned Mum's house in Edinburgh to wish us all a happy Christmas. When it was my turn to talk to Dominic, he told me that PP was a paradise and I would need to get out there soon myself. Early next morning, I was woken by the phone ringing again. I had the happy idea that it must be Dominic. Who else would feel free to ring so early on the day after Christmas? And hurried downstairs to answer it. But it was not Dominic. It was one of his friends, and she was calling because she wanted to know if we had heard anything from him. I turned on the television to find that every channel was showing footage of an earthquake in Indonesia and the tsunami that had ensued around the region. My Uncle Bob travelled to Thailand to look for Dominic and Eileen. Initially, we told each other that he was simply going to search the hospitals for amnesiacs and the comatose, but as the days ticked by, we came to understand this was no longer his mission. On New Year's Day, Bob discovered that a body had been recovered from Pepe that bore bank cards in Dominic's name and matched his height and shoe size. It had to be Dominic, but bodies were by now only being released once they had been formally matched by DNA, dental records or fingerprints. 
A discrepancy in the international hieroglyphics meant that Dominic's dental records could not be considered a full match, and so we now found ourselves waiting for the interminable science of fingerprint matching and DNA testing. To wait was almost all that there was to do. Wait for his body to be fetched home, and in the meantime, go quietly insane. I found myself wearing Dominic's old T-shirts and clothes. His height had never caught up with mine, nor my muscles with his, and these garments hung short and loose, but I could feel him inside them, could smell him amid their folds. In the daytime, I visited the places we had together once known, a reservoir in the foothills of the Pentland Hills, the suburban houses we had grown up in, the meadows where we had endlessly thrown our frisbee back and forth. Alone at night, I drove his black car fast on the city bypass and turned up the volume on the last tape he had been listening to, Bruce Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town. I began to sleep in his old room once again, as if there might still be anything left to be scared of. And always, through it all, I wanted to talk to Dominic about what was happening, to ask him what he made of it all. If it had been anybody else who had died, he would have been the one to guide me home. He would have found the safe path down the darkening mountainside and beckoned me to follow. Instead, as the empty weeks fell into one another, I simply stopped believing that he was dead. He was too young, too strong, too vital, too proud. He was my brother, my almost twin, and he surely would not have left this earth without telling me. A woman on the internet thought that she had glimpsed Dominic among the survivors in a piece of news footage, and this, combined with the glitch in his dental records, provided all the doubt I needed to convince myself that fate was playing this one with a twist. I knew a secret, but it was too precious, too fragile to share with anyone. The body in the temple in Thailand was not that of my brother, but belonged to the thief who had stolen his wallet in the hours preceding the tsunami. Any day now, he would wake with a start in a clean white hospital room. Any day now, a passing ship would spot his signal fire. Any day now, his name would light up the screen on my mobile phone. In March, an entirely different kind of phone call arrived. The fingerprints taken at the temple in Thailand had been matched to those collected by the local police from Dominic's flat in Edinburgh. My brother really was dead, and his body was to be flown home overnight. It was several more months before Eileen's body was identified and brought home. At Dominic's funeral, I told a packed auditorium what a special person Dominic was and how much I loved him. Perhaps this was not necessary. The people there had all come because they already knew how special a person Dominic was, and the only person I really wanted to tell how much I loved him was Dominic himself. I spoke about some other things too, though. About the mattress I kept in his room and the summer nights we stood out on the meadows until long after it was dark. I finished by reading a quote from the introduction to a book of Bruce Springsteen's lyrics that Dominic had given me the previous Christmas. Springsteen's passage referred to a very particular group of heroes, but I talked about how older brothers are heroes too. Even in death he remained my older brother, my protector, my everyday hero, the one who would always look out for me the one who would never fail to provide for me. In life, he'd had a group of friends so close and so perpetually present that I had always numbered them as my friends too. After he died, 
they drew me in even further to their circle. They had been Dominic's brothers too, and by inheritance they were now mine. With them I played shin-bruising games of football, went to the movies and the fights, and spent endless afternoons fishing on the banks of a slow river. Fraternal pastimes all, they were among the things I most desperately needed. And still I found myself following him, attempting to walk in his footsteps wherever they might lead. In August, his friend Neil and I travelled out to Thailand, and on Pee I quickly came to feel closer to Dominic than I ever had in any number of nights sleeping in his room in Edinburgh. We joined a group of people working to build a memorial garden, and this was certainly part of it, to labour in the sun alongside Neil and to feel the camaraderie of an endless army of backpack volunteers. From them, too, I learnt that at 26 years old I not only still had the right to go out and drink a beer or two when my day's work was done, but also that, for the sake of those who could do so no longer, I had something of a duty to. Yet there were other, stranger components to it. For everything that happened there, PP remains one of the most beautiful places in the world, its twinned emerald bays separated by a sand and coconut tree isthmus. There, you hear reggae music on every corner, and some mornings it even wakes you the same way that Dominic would wake me on a teenage Saturday. Every Thai friend you make wants to know how old you are, and he wants to know this because if you are a single day younger than him, he will wish to look after you as if he were your older brother. As my days on the island turned to weeks, I began to understand my time in Thailand as a kind of last, loving gift from Dominic. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.